Throughout the past 12 months, we at Detroit Stories have enjoyed bringing you, as our tagline says, the stories that fascinate and inspire us. And they truly do. We've shared some incredible people with you. A video game streamer sharing his faith online, a comedian telling jokes for Jesus, a Catholic fantasy fiction author who builds fantastical worlds with prose, even a possible youper saint. We've asked some interesting questions too. Can faith and science be reconciled? What if we pray for healing and it doesn't come? Do Catholics believe in ghosts? We've gone behind the scenes with military chaplains, urban farming, 1960s sock hops, and pandemic weddings. But did you know there's more to our story? Much more. As the official podcast of Detroit Catholic, the online news source of the Archdiocese of Detroit, we're telling stories every day. Some of them make it to the podcast, while others you can read for yourself in our daily and weekly newsletters and on DetroitCatholic.com. Today on Detroit Stories, we're going to give you a glimpse of the best of the rest, the top five written stories of 2023 we think you should hear firsthand. If you're already a reader of Detroit Catholic, from the bottom of our hearts, thank you. And if you're not, we hope you'll check out our other work and maybe even become a subscriber. Merry Christmas, Detroit, and Happy New Year. Welcome to Detroit Stories, a podcast on a mission to boldly share the stories of the people and communities in Southeast Michigan. These are the stories that fascinate and inspire us. Thinking about the probability of dying is something none of us wants to face. No matter what we do, all of us will pass away one day. Preparing now is a great way to help our loved ones during their grieving process and ensure our final wishes are followed. Our caring friends at the Catholic Funeral and Cemetery Services can help you. Visit cfcsdetroit.org or call 734-285-2155. Number five, in God we trust and ride. Knights on Bikes Live KFC's Principles on Harleys. Gabriella Patti wrote this story on January 6th, an inside look at the Knights of Columbus's motorcycle gang. Yep, you heard that right. Most knights wear shining armor and ride into battle on a mighty steed. In the Archdiocese of Detroit, however, some knights prefer leather and ride for the service of others on a Harley. Knights on Bikes is a fraternal organization of Knights of Columbus members with a passion for riding motorcycles. The group was founded in Texas in 2005, and as of 2023, multiple Knights on Bikes councils exist across the United States and Canada. Their motto, in God we trust and ride. Membership is about more than leather-clad, rugged men on motorcycles, though. It's a fraternal organization that unites men from different councils under a common hobby and the noble code of the Knights of Columbus. We are Knights on Bikes, but we are all Knights of Columbus members first. Michigan State Knights on Bikes Vice President James Kabinsky told Detroit Catholic, A lot of the stuff we do is the same as what we do as Knights of Columbus members. We will just show up on motorcycles, which gets some heads to turn. It's a different format that is highly visible and cool. The mission is to evangelize the motorcycle community, with members seeking to uphold the four pillars of the Knights of Columbus, charity, unity, fraternity, and patriotism. We do a ton of charity work, Kabinsky explained. The really cool thing about us is that we get a lot of guys from other councils together in the area. So there is a lot of interaction cross-council. In Michigan, nearly 20 Knights of Columbus councils participate in Knights on Bikes, 
nine of which are in the Archdiocese of Detroit. The group includes clergy, including Saginaw Bishop Robert D. Groose. The group's presence is evangelistic in itself, Kabinsky said. We walk into church and people are looking. Sometimes people are a little worried when they see a bunch of bikers walk in, Kabinsky said. We've had some funny things where we change people's opinions of us really quickly. We once showed up to Mass at Assumption Grotto Parish in Northeast Detroit and just started saying the rosary. Pretty soon, we had the whole church doing it too, so that right there, it gets heads turning. Kabinsky, 32, is a father of three and a band teacher at South Lake Middle and High Schools in St. Clair Shores. He bought his first bike, a 2004 Road King Classic, in 2014 alongside his dad, Brian Kabinsky. The elder Kabinsky serves as president of the Knights on Bikes chapter in the Archdiocese of Detroit, which constitutes more than half the state's almost 200 members. Before owning bikes, both father and son were members of the Bishop Murphy Knights of Columbus Council 3257 in Warren, when they realized many of their fellow knights also owned motorcycles. We got together and thought about treating it like a little riding club, just a special fun thing to do, James explained. We decided to come up with a logo, get a vest. The one thing we had in common is we were all Knights of Columbus members, and we were trying to think of some sort of spin-off involving that. In a moment of pure luck, one of the club members stumbled across the Knights on Bikes. The newly formed club met with the organization's state president, who invited them to join the fraternal club. Back then, James Kabinsky was a novice rider. He has since upgraded to a 2019 Harley-Davidson Ultra Limited with, quote, more bells and whistles. While his father had some experience riding dirt bikes as a boy and a young man, but stopped after he got married. Brian Kabinsky, father of James and one other grown son, works as an IT professional for Trinity Health and attends St. Mark's Parish in Warren. Over the years, Brian had driven an 18-wheeler, but by the time James suggested they get motorcycles, it had been 25 years since he had last ridden a bike. Now, he has a whole new perspective on three wheels with his Harley-Davidson Tri-Glide. Knights on Bikes evangelize by supporting charities and contributing to their parish communities, Brian Kabinsky said. When you work with a charitable organization like the Knights of Columbus, you may just come across people in need. And we never look the other way. We're always trying to find a way to help, Brian said. The Archdiocesan Knights on Bikes regularly volunteer at St. Charles Borromeo Parish in Detroit, first attending Mass and then cooking a meal for the community. Members also frequently volunteer at Camp Cavell in Lexington, a summer camp for adults who have aged out of the Muscular Dystrophy Association, where the Knights make campers a steak dinner to break up the monotony and plainness of camp food. Members also frequently get together for rallies with other chapters across the United States. Unity and fraternity are not in short supply. We are always getting together and doing stuff, James said. The Knights of Columbus's principle of patriotism is not forgotten either. We do a lot of patriotic stuff, James said. Some of us went to the Rolling Thunder motorcycle rally at the Pentagon a few years ago. Another thing we do in Detroit annually is adopt a few firehouses in the Warren and Hazel Park area. As a September 11th memorial in honor of the fallen first responders, we cook a pretty awesome meal and drop it off. Members have also been called upon to provide motorcycle escorts for their fellow Knights of Columbus, including funerals and processions. A few years ago, we were called up by a priest who asked us to be present at his brother's funeral. His brother was really huge into motorcycles. This priest is a knight himself, and he had heard about us. At the end of the funeral, we took his cremated remains on a motorcycle and gave him one last ride around the church. While the men are knights first, they also identify with a larger biker community. 
The cultural image of bikers, popularized by stereotypical portrayals of outlaw bikers in old Hollywood movies like The Wild One and Easy Rider, and the notoriety of motorcycle gangs like Hell's Angels, is false, James said. Bikers are wearing their leather and their skulls and stuff like that, but they are some of the nicest people, he said. Groups like Hell's Angels exist, but the way I look at it, they just happen to ride motorcycles. There are a lot of good people, and I never realized how welcoming the biker community was until I was part of it. The biker community is extremely generous. It's not uncommon for an impromptu biker event to be held at a hole-in-the-wall bar to raise money for one charity or another. Everything they do, from riding bikes to serving the community, is linked to members' faith. There is something about riding a motorcycle that is just so different from a car. You're more connected with everything, James explained. When you're in a car, it's like watching TV in some ways. But when you're on a motorcycle, you're an active player. You feel the wind, you smell different smells, things you don't notice in a car. You will hit a random air pocket on the freeway and the temperature will drop 10 degrees all of a sudden. And then it goes right back to where it was. You are so much more connected to everything around you. And it's almost like a spiritual experience. Number four, stolen Station of the Cross returned to Richmond Parish after 22-year mystery. When a Detroit Catholic reader alerted us in the spring that he believed he was in possession of stolen property, well, let's just say it caught our attention. Dan Malloy has the story from May 22nd. It was a regular Sunday in the 1990s when an unknown culprit casually walked up to the first station of the cross, Jesus is Condemned, at St. Augustine Parish in Richmond and pulled it off the wall. It was just after Mass and parishioners were casually milling about. No one batted an eye when the suspect boldly removed the eight-by-five-foot marble statue from its fixture and strolled out the door, thinking it must be part of some restoration effort. As it turns out, it was the perfect crime. It was in the 1990s after a Sunday Mass when folks were leaving like they normally do, standing around and chatting, Patricia Misiak, receptionist at St. Augustine, told Detroit Catholic. A few parishioners saw a gentleman walking out of the church carrying the first station of the cross. Nobody thought anything of it, just figuring it was a volunteer doing some repair work or cleaning the station, Patricia said. This repair work turned out to be larceny, but by the time the parish and then pastor Father Jim Common figured out that was the case, it was too late. The station was gone, and the parish needed a replacement. Father Common turned to parishioner Christine Smith and her husband Kirby, a sculptor who worked in ceramics and had taught at local high schools. I knew Father Jim prior to him coming to St. Augustine, and he knew Kirby was an artist, so he asked for Kirby to make a replacement after one of our Stations of the Cross was stolen, Christine Smith said. Kirby Smith, who died in 2019, wasn't Catholic at the time, but he was familiar with the faith after marrying Christine. Kirby taught art for more than 30 years, including stops at Notre Dame High School in Harper Woods, Notre Dame Preparatory in Pontiac, and Cranbrook Kingswood in Bloomfield Hills. Father Jim recommended we use station number 10, Jesus is stripped of his garments, since it was a full-on view of Christ and easier to make, Smith said. We took number 10 home, and it was in our basement for a while. We had to scout around for the tiles, the background, so it would all match. For the next 22 years, the replacement station served just nicely at St. Augustine, part of a bizarre tale in parish lore until now. In a strange twist of divine providence, the cold case caught a break when Misiak received a call out of the blue with the most wonderful, 
if not outlandish, news. We received a call just a few months ago from a gentleman who had the missing station, Misiak said. He didn't know who had possession of it before, but he called and recognized our set of stations from some publication and said he had our first station. The man on the other end of the line was Leonard St. Pierre, director of the Our Lady of Fatima Shrine in Riverview. The station had been in the shrine's sanctuary for seven years, in the room where the altar servers prepare for Mass. St. Pierre had never been to St. Augustine, but recalled seeing the set of stations in a featured publication on Stations of the Cross in the Archdiocese of Detroit and noted St. Augustine's unique design. I looked at the stations in the magazine. I don't remember the particular publication, but I looked and I thought, oh my gosh, I have that station, St. Pierre said. The caption said St. Augustine Parish in Richmond, so I called them immediately. The secretary answered, saying the station was stolen years ago, and a gentleman from the parish, who isn't even Catholic, made another one. I gave the address to the shrine, saying they are welcome to have it back. How St. Pierre came into possession of St. Augustine's station is a story with its own mystery. Seven years ago, St. Pierre said, he received a call from a woman in St. Clair Shores asking whether the Our Lady of Fatima Chapel, which would later become a shrine, would be interested in a host of religious items the woman's family had collected over the years. When we got to the place with a U-Haul, the place was packed. You couldn't get through, St. Pierre recalled. The furniture and so many religious items were amongst all of this clutter down there. There were pieces in boxes, unmarked, unorganized, just all this clutter. And then I saw the Station of the Cross from a church, and I asked how they got it. Apparently, a member of the woman's family purchased all these things from all over the world. St. Pierre said most of the items had documentation of proof of purchase, including items from Germany, Italy, and France, but the station didn't have any, and wouldn't be of much value without the other 13 stations. But the family was trying to get rid of as much as they could, so St. Pierre and volunteers from the Our Lady of Fatima Chapel accepted the station and moved it down to Riverview. And there it remained. The parish, unaware its missing station was 58 miles away, and St. Pierre not realizing the shrine had a local treasure. We had it in the sacristy for the altar boys, St. Pierre said. We have our own station, so we had it leaning up against the ambo during Lent and put away for the rest of the year. So it wasn't a big shock that nobody would recognize it from St. Augustine. When St. Pierre made the discovery, he contacted the parish and Jean Robinson, director of evangelical charity at St. Augustine, volunteered to make the drive to pick it up. The parish was thrilled to recover its long-lost sacramental, but even happier to learn it had been in the safe hands of another Catholic site for all these years. It resurfaced here and is back home, Robinson said. When people at the parish found out how we got the station, they were amazed that this happened. With the original station back on the wall at St. Augustine, the replacement Kirby Smith made was given back to Christine, who said she will find a place in her home for the keepsake. I was astonished when I heard the station was back, Smith said. Jean called me and told me, and I thought, are you kidding me? It's been gone for 20 years. We don't know where it's been or what it's been doing, but hopefully it has done some good along the way. While it remains a mystery how the station ended up in St. Clair Shores, or where it went after it was snatched from the wall to begin with, However it happened, the long-lost sacramental is back where it belongs. This could only be the work of God. That's the way I look at things, Robinson said. I knew Kirby. I was his sponsor when he came into the church. He was such a holy man. It's hard to describe it, but it's great 
to be part of bringing the station back to the church. Looking at all of this, I know it's God's work. Number three, Father Alan Travers, the one game pitcher who might have saved the Detroit Tigers. Did you know the worst pitcher in Major League Baseball history, statistically speaking, was a Catholic priest? Neither did we until Dan Malloy broke the story on July 14th. The worst pitcher ever to take the mound for the Detroit Tigers became a Catholic priest. Granted, Alan Travers was already on the path to priesthood before suiting up for Detroit on May 18, 1912. But his story and place in baseball history is the prime example of being in the right place at the right time, or the wrong place at the wrong time. Travers only played in one game, but one was enough to show that God had plans for him that didn't involve the big leagues. The story begins, as most stories of Tigers lore do, with Ty Cobb. The Tigers were in New York on May 15th to play the Highlanders, the precursor to the Yankees. Cobb was playing in the outfield when he was verbally abused by a New York fan who was using profanity and racial slurs to describe Cobb's play. Cobb, never known for keeping his cool, stormed into the stands and unleashed a volley of punches on the fan. Tigers players rushed to the scene of the chaos, yelling at Cobb to lay off the man, who was missing one hand and three fingers on his other hand after suffering an industrial accident. Cobb didn't care and continued the barrage. Van Johnson, president of the American League, happened to be at the game, checking on the family-friendly excitement of what was turning into America's pastime. Having one of the league's star players beat up a disabled spectator didn't jibe well with Johnson's vision for baseball, so Cobb was suspended indefinitely. The Tigers felt Cobb's punishment was unfair, so the players voted to strike until Cobb was reinstated for the club's next game in three days against the two-time defending World Series champion Philadelphia Athletics. Johnson called the Tigers bluff, informing then-Tigers owner Frank Navin the team would face a $5,000 fine for every game Detroit forfeited. Navin needed to field a team and quick, so he and Tigers manager Huey Jennings collaborated with athletics owner and manager Connie Mack to field a team of players to take the field. This was well before the age of expansive minor league rosters, or commercial airlines for that matter. So it wasn't as though the Tigers could call up the farm team in Toledo and get them to Philadelphia in time to play the A's. Instead, scouting was done the old-fashioned way, spreading the word throughout town, asking who wanted to play baseball. And this is where Aloysius Joseph Allen Travers, the student manager on the St. Joseph's College baseball team, comes into the story. Jennings worked with a friend of his, Joe Nolan, a sports writer for the Philadelphia Bulletin, to field a team. Nolan knew Travers, a junior at St. Joseph's who lived in Philadelphia from the time the A's fielded a second stringer team to play St. Joseph's College. Nolan asked Travers to find 10 to 12 amateur players in the area who could suit up for the Tigers in case the Tigers players followed through on their strike threats. The idea was that the amateurs would never actually take the field. Rather, it was just a tactics to get Jennings' real players on the field. Travers rounded up eight players who were free that day and enticed by the $25 Navin offered to each player. Jennings had his team of strike breakers, as requested by Navin. When the umpire called, play ball, the Tiger regulars took the field. But when the umpire spotted Cobb and told him to take a seat, the rest of the team walked out and took off their uniforms. 
The Strikebreakers would have to play after all. They were ushered into the locker room and donned the Tigers' gray uniforms. This was in the day before names were on the back of uniforms. Two bench coaches joined the group to offer the squad some big league experience. The question was, who would pitch? There were no takers at first, so Navin offered an extra $25. Travers volunteered. $50 was good money for a college kid in 1912. There was one small problem. Travers had never played organized ball. He was the assistant manager on the college baseball team, tasked with keeping stats and writing game summaries. But there he was, the college student with plans on joining the seminary after graduation, pitching before 20,000 fans at Scheib Park against two-time defending World Series champions. A modern David versus Goliath, a plucky underdog story. This time, Goliath won. Travers did as well as one would expect the assistant manager of a college baseball team to do against professionals. He pitched a complete game, surrendering 24 runs on 26 hits, both American League records. He got one MLB strikeout, and they can't take that away from him. But the 15.75 ERA leaves a mark. He also batted 0 for 3 at the plate. Travers' time in the major leagues was abrupt. After the 24-2 shellacking the A's put on the strike-breaking Tigers, Cobb persuaded his teammates to end the strike before the team's upcoming series against the Washington Senators. Travers' calling was the priesthood, not pitching. After graduating from St. Joseph's College in 1913, he joined the Society of Jesus, studying at St. Andrew on the Hudson in New York and Woodstock College in Maryland. He was ordained a priest in 1926, making him the only priest ever to play in a major league game. His ministry took him to teaching positions at St. Francis Xavier High School in Manhattan and St. Joseph's Prep and St. Joseph's College in Philadelphia. Father Travers didn't speak about his baseball exploits, but he did give an interview about his bizarre start for the Tigers. About noon, when Nolan told me about the strike of Detroit, he told me the club would be fined and might lose its franchise if 12 players didn't show up, Father Travers told sports writer Red Smith. He told me to round up as many fellows as I could. We never thought we'd play a game. Father Travers said Jennings told him to avoid throwing fastballs to avoid getting killed out there. But the A's didn't hold back, even resorting to bunting when they found out the third baseman had never played baseball before. I fed him nothing but slow stuff after Frank Baker almost hit one out of the park on me, which fortunately went foul, Father Travers said. I was doing fine until they started bunting. The guy playing third base had never played baseball before. I just didn't get any support. I threw a beautiful slow ball and the A's were just hitting easy flies. Trouble was, no one could catch them. Curious enough, the only fame Father Travers got from his start was his picture in the newspaper with the word strike breaker printed above. There was a trolley strike in Philadelphia that month and Father Travers' mother was worried for her son's safety because people might suspect he was a scab. Father Travers didn't like talking about his quote-unquote baseball career with his students. And his story is not well known, save for a few baseball history blogs. He did sign a ball from that fateful day that wound up in the collection of Ada resident Steve Nagengast, who claims to have the largest collection of Tiger's autographs. Nagengast was featured in the Detroit News, and the anecdote about Father Travers piqued Detroit Catholics' interest. Father Travers didn't have the greatest impact on Tiger's history. But the $5,000 per game fine the Tigers faced for each game the club forfeited would have been devastating, especially in an era when professional teams folded and changed towns all the time. So who knows? 
Father Travers' one-game career might have just saved the Tigers. Number two, woman returns to Detroit Cathedral where she was left as a baby in the 1950s. In 1953, a distraught new mother brought her infant daughter into Detroit's Cathedral of the Most Blessed Sacrament and left her there for good. 70 years later, that baby, Mary Fuller, spoke to Dan Malloy on September 1st about how she discovered her birth family and her Catholic faith. Every time Mary Fuller steps into the Cathedral of the Most Blessed Sacrament, she reconnects with her roots. It was 70 years ago when Fuller was found as a baby in the back pew of the Cathedral on Woodward Avenue by two nursing students, possibly left there by a mysterious person who asked where the rectory was and was never seen again, according to a Detroit News story from January 27, 1953. The two nurses took the baby to Detroit Receiving Hospital, giving her the name Mary Church as opposed to Jane Doe. Fuller was eventually put up for adoption by Catholic Social Services, was adopted by Elizabeth and Leo Kraus, grew up at Our Lady of All Saints Parish in Fraser alongside her three siblings, and lived a prosperous life centered around family and the Catholic faith. I don't even remember my parents sitting down and telling me I was adopted. We just always knew, Fuller told Detroit Catholic during her most recent trip to the cathedral. Fuller now lives in Florida, but is sure to stop by the cathedral every time she comes back to Michigan to visit family. Along with my siblings, we always knew I was adopted, Fuller said. Now, my three younger siblings look identical, just like my mom. Red hair, freckles, green eyes. Then there was me with the blonde hair. I just didn't have the same features. My dad would say I take after his side of the family. Fuller initially studied music at Wayne State University after graduating from Fraser High School, but switched to special education and started working with the Macomb Intermediate School District for 10 years. She earned a master's in educational behavioral psychology, moved to Florida, and began working as a behavioral specialist, earning another master's in clinical counseling and finishing her doctoral studies at the University of South Florida. Fuller frequently returned to Michigan with her younger brother, Timothy, who is mildly disabled, to visit with family, particularly her sister, Lisa. Fuller and Lisa were very close, and Lisa was the backup caregiver for Tim. And every trip back, she would make a journey to where it all started, the Cathedral of the Most Blessed Sacrament, where the bundled-up newborn was discovered by two nursing students. The visits took on a greater meaning in 2019, when Lisa unexpectedly died. It was December 2019 when my sister Lisa died unexpectedly of an aneurysm, and that was December 20th, Fuller said. So it was Christmas Mass. We came down here that morning with my niece and were pretty broken. After Mass, we prayed, and then the deacon and Father J.J. Mech, rector of the Cathedral of the Most Blessed Sacrament, came up to us and talked to us. Fuller told Father J.J. her story of how she was found as a baby in the cathedral, and he was very intrigued by it. Lisa's death caused Fuller to think about tracking down her roots. As Tim's primary caregiver, she wanted to know if there were any genetic diseases or patterns she should be aware of. It was less about finding family, more about figuring out where she came from. Fuller submitted a 23andMe DNA test, and she waited. What she got was way more, and much better, than a family medical history. It was March 6th, my grandson's birthday, 
that I got an email saying I had a sister, and her name is Kelly Bell, Fuller said. So, 73 days after losing my sister Lisa, I found another sister, Kelly. Kelly and I started writing back and forth. This is all during the pandemic. And months later, we agreed to meet each other. Fuller learned that not only did she have a sister, but two brothers, David and Jack. Fuller's biological mother, Barbara Braidwood, was a young girl living on Woodward Avenue about six or seven blocks from the cathedral when she gave birth to Fuller. When I come into this church, I'm just thinking of my mom and what she went through, Fuller said. Fuller's biological mom married and gave birth to Kelly, and the family moved to Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Fuller's two half-brothers are musicians, a callback to Fuller first majoring in music at Wayne State. Curiously enough, when Fuller moved down to Florida in 1985, she was only an hour away from her siblings. Kelly and my brothers never knew I existed. For them, it was overwhelmingly shocking, Fuller said. My brothers at first thought it wasn't true, until they saw the picture of me and my biological mother saying, oh my God, you look more like her than any of us. Fuller learned that Braidwood was an entertainer who once sang with the Tommy Dorsey Orchestra and, by day, was a court reporter. Who Fuller's father is remains a mystery. Kelly feels there was a time when she was 18 when my mom was trying to tell her something, but didn't know how, Fuller said. She told me she remembers one night mom was just sitting there, crying and crying, and it felt like she was carrying a burden. All three of my siblings tell me what a wonderful, kind, and loving person she was. Braidwood died soon after this interaction with Kelly. Fuller thinks all adopted children have a sense of longing for a connection to their birth parents, but she wouldn't trade the life, the family, or the faith in which she was raised. I know it was in the back of my head, wondering about my birth family, absolutely, Fuller said. I know every adopted child has a different journey about that. In the back of my head, I can clearly tell you every birthday I would talk to her, saying things in my head like, I hope you're proud of me. Fuller's biological mother wasn't Catholic, so she's not sure why she was left in the back pew of the cathedral, but it has created a lifelong connection between her and the church. I feel this deep sense of energy when I come to the cathedral. I feel my mom here, my biological mother here, Fuller said. I always said it feels like home here. This is my roots, because I don't have any other beginning. My beginning was right here in this church. So when I step in here, I walk and feel that energy of where I come from. It's here. My connection to the Catholic Church is very deep, very profound, because I was left here. I can't imagine what my mom was going through, but I know in my heart I was meant to be here. Fuller's visits to the cathedral have always been emotional affairs knowing this is where her journey began, but they have taken on a deeper meaning ever since she got to know her birth family. She's now connected to both families, the life she was meant to have all this time. I was able yesterday to sit in that pew over there with Kelly, and we talked about our mom, and she said, you know, Mary, I think mom is looking down on us now, Fuller said. She sees her two daughters together, and I think she is really happy. We sat there together and had that moment, and I really hope my biological mother and adoptive mother are holding hands. My adoptive mother was a great mom. She lived to be 95, and she said her greatest fear would be that I would find my biological mom and she would lose me. That was never going to happen, Fuller added. I want the two of them to bond, 
and know the role they played in my life. I hope my mom knows that as a devout Catholic, my life has been about service. Number one, survivor of the Rwandan Holocaust tells parishioners, if I can forgive, anyone can. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. For Immaculate Ilibagiza, a survivor of the 1994 Rwandan genocide, there are no more difficult words in scripture. She lost everything she had, including her parents, her home, and her country, when militants attacked her village. On March 8th, she testified to the overwhelming power of forgiveness at St. Kieran Parish in Shelby Township. Gabriella Patti has the story. Immaculate Ilibagiza remembers every detail of the last time she saw her parents in April 1994. Ilibagiza, a 24-year-old university student, had returned to her parents' home in Rwanda for Easter break. Ilibagiza had woken up that morning to a horrifying broadcast on the radio. The president had died in a plane crash, and the government had organized to track down and murder members of her tribe, the Tutsis. The 1994 Rwandan genocide took place between April 7th and July 15th, during which Hutu militias killed members of the Tutsi minority and more moderate Hutus. Ilibagiza, a survivor of the genocide, spoke for two hours to parishioners at St. Karen Parish in Shelby Township on the evening of March 8th. Ilibagiza is the author of five books, including the New York Times bestseller, Left to Tell, Discovering God Amidst the Rwandan Holocaust. Ilibagiza previously worked for the United Nations and now spends her time speaking about her experience and the lessons of faith she learned through her suffering. She also leads pilgrimages to the sites of Marian apparitions, including Our Lady of Cabejo in Rwanda. On the day of that horrifying radio broadcast, Ilibagiza's father handed her a rosary and told her to go to the home of a sympathetic Hutu neighbor to hide. I remember when I was leaving, it was as if something in my heart was telling me, this is it, you will never see him again, Ilagabiza said. I literally can remember looking at everyone where they were standing, where my mother was, and the angle she had, and I felt like that was it. And actually that was it, that was the last time I saw them. I remember when my father gave me the rosary. It was as if something was speaking to my heart, as if he said words he didn't say. I felt he was telling me from his heart, I will never be here again, but whatever you need, you know what to do. Pray the rosary, and you ask Our Lady, you ask God, and they will give it to you. I am your father, I have taken care of you, but this is it. For 91 days, Ilibagiza, along with seven other women ages 7 to 55, hid in a 3 by 4 foot bathroom in the home of the Hutu neighbor. They were ordered to be absolutely silent and feared being found in the small four-bedroom home. At one point, Hutu militias came and searched the house, but inexplicably did not enter the bathroom, despite touching the door handle. When Ilibagiza finally left that bathroom, her life had changed entirely. Everyone in her family, except for one brother, had died, as well as countless friends and neighbors. She weighed 65 pounds and had no home. More than that, however, she walked out knowing God was with her. Those three months had changed her, and Ilibagiza now had the capacity to love and forgive, 
even those who hurt her the most. I will never wish what happened to us to happen to anyone. And I still cry to this day for losing my mom and dad and how they died, Ilabagiza said. Suffering is bad, but it is part of life, and it really teaches us to come closer to God. Our Lady has told us through her apparitions that when we live suffering, where there were thorns, she dresses them in roses. Where there was winter, comes summer and spring. Our Lady can teach us how to embrace suffering, Ilabagiza said, and she knows from her experience to take suffering as a gift and ask God what he wants to teach. Ilabagiza repeatedly emphasized that one of the biggest lessons she learned from her suffering was the power of love. When she has found herself questioning how such terrible suffering could have happened inflicted by neighbors and friends, she said the answer is clear, because of a failure to love. Anywhere there are wars, families being destroyed, there is always somebody who failed to love somebody. And that's exactly what our Lord has told us. The greatest commandment is love, Ilabagiza said. Sometimes we take love for granted, but when we realize what a lack of love can do, then we realize its importance, she added. Love is so important, so don't take it lightly. As long as I know I am loving, to me, that is the core of my life. Ilabagiza said, We don't know when we're going to live, where we're going to go, but when we are here, try to be the most loving person in whatever way, every moment. Another lesson Ilabagiza learned in the bathroom was that without a shadow of a doubt, God is real. While in hiding, Ilabagiza only had the clothes on her back and the rosary her father gave her. She said fear and anger overtook her thoughts, and she began losing faith. One day, she peered out of the tiny window in the bathroom and saw hundreds of people, primarily armed young men, running through the streets, searching for people to kill. She was consumed by fear as they surrounded the house, began to scream, and then entered in search of her and the other women. Ilabagiza knew she was about to die and felt a voice telling her to open the door and surrender. Why wait for the inevitable? However, she heard another voice telling her not to open the door and to ask God to help her instead. The voice said, Do you remember who God is? God is Almighty. Do you know what Almighty means? It means He can do anything. Do you know what anything means? It means that if they open the door, they might not be able to see you. Even if they shoot you, the bullet might not be able to go through you. Ilikabiza recounted. I remember I had to choose which voice to listen to. In those two voices, really, what they were trying to accomplish was that I could either pray or don't pray. If I believe there is no God, what do you do? You will lose hope. The other way is to keep asking God, keep praying, and actually believe that's where our power lies. Ilabagiza turned to the kinder voice and prayed as she had never before in her entire life. I told him, If you are there, I am begging you. I want to have a sign for sure, because I was kind of losing my faith. If you are there, don't let the killers find the door to the bathroom. I remember asking this specific question because I wanted to know God heard me, she said. If they don't find us today, I will know you did it. And if you did it, I promise I will seek you. Ilabagiza fainted and woke up five hours later to a quiet home. The militia had left 
And while they searched every nook and cranny, they had approached the door to the bathroom, touched the handle, but decided to leave. God had heard and answered her prayers, and Ilibagiza realized she wasn't alone. We couldn't speak in the bathroom, but now I can talk to God. I can talk to angels, and I can talk to Our Lady, she said. I started to speak to him the way I am speaking to you now because since he can hear me, I better just talk to him. I started to talk to him about my anger. Eager to understand God, Ilibagiza began to read the Bible. She began to pray the rosary from morning until night, working through her anger and fear. Slowly, she developed the ability to pray from her heart and mean what she said. The moment I started to mean the words I was saying and say them in a way I could hear, everything changed. I felt the power in me and healing that was different, Iligabiza said. When angry, Iligabiza thought of becoming a soldier and killing everyone who had hurt her family. However, as she prayed and talked to God, her heart softened. While praying the rosary, Iligabiza stopped short when she came to the line, Our Father who art in heaven. She realized that if she meant these words, that meant that God is truly the father of everyone, and she could not hate his children. God tells us in the Bible that he loves us more than we can love our own children, Iligabiza said. Even if a mother can forget her newborn, our Father in heaven says he will never forget you. He knows even the number of hairs on your head. She said her heart melted as she realized how much God must be hurting as he watched his children turn to hate. Another line in the Our Father also gave Ilibagiza pause. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. She couldn't bring herself to say the words and decided to skip it. How could she forgive those who had hurt her? One day, while meditating on the fifth sorrowful mystery, the crucifixion, The words of Christ on his cross, Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do, took her by surprise. She too realized that those who hurt her family did not truly know what they were doing and in some way thought they were doing good. When we do something that goes against God's commandment, against love, sooner or later it starts to hurt us, she said. I was trying to become a killer. This is what anger does to us. It pulls us to become like the one that is hurting us. When I realized the power of forgiveness, I felt a huge weight was lifted from my shoulders. I felt free. I also realized these people are still the children of God. Ilibagiza began to pray for those who had hurt her. If her heart could change, she reasoned, why not theirs? I realize the people on the side of love are people who have suffered and who have known injustice may be worse than me. But no matter what happened to them, they stand for love, she said. They stand up for justice, for truth. And when I saw that, I knew I am never going to go on the side of hate. When Ilibagiza was finally freed and went to a refugee camp, she had nothing and soon learned her entire family had died. She recalls breaking down in tears and feeling hopeless. And then I felt the grace of God holding me tight and reminding me, Hey, remember me in the bathroom? The journey of your loved ones is over here on earth, but not in heaven. But your journey here is not over, and you don't know how long it will be. In that moment of grace, 
Ilabagiza knew God was asking her to use whatever time she had left to love in whatever capacity she could. What is within your capacity is how you choose your life moment by moment, not tomorrow, because you do not know what is tomorrow, Ilabagiza recalled of God's encouragement. Choose now to love or to hate, to be kind or to be mean. And if you choose love and kindness, I am with you. Ask me for everything you need. I will give it to you. I will help you. You will never be alone. Ilabagiza said that she started to live to love others and began right there in the refugee camp in whatever small way she could. I feel like it's the same way I am living now, she said. We just have this moment. We just have today to do the best we can. Whenever I think of myself as a wife and mother, I think, how can I be a better mother? How can I care and be courageous and love and respect my husband? How can I do that? How can I write with care? Moment by moment, we just have to choose how we can be a good person, she added. How can I love? Ilabagiza said if she can forgive, anyone can. And it is all possible through God. To have faith is the most beautiful gift you can ever have. All those who have faith and believe in God can say all things are possible. You'd never have to lose hope because God is always there and you can run to him, Ilabagiza said. To love God truly and to know God is there is the greatest gift because I can be at peace. Whatever happens, he is going to be there. He is going to help me deal with it. That's it for Detroit Stories in 2023. We hope you'll listen and read us again next year. To you and your loved ones, thanks for inviting us into your home. And may God grant you his everlasting peace. Detroit Stories is a production of Detroit Catholic and the Communications Department of the Archdiocese of Detroit. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thinking about the probability of dying is something none of us wants to face. No matter what we do, all of us will pass away one day. Preparing now is a great way to help our loved ones during their grieving process and ensure our final wishes are followed. Our caring friends at the Catholic Funeral and Cemetery Services can help you. Visit cfcsdetroit.org or call 734-285-2155.